We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 87 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 12 with Jim Lovell and Edwin Buzz Aldrin, Part 2. We left off last time just after the launch of Jiminy 12. In space, Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin began to wonder if everything had been shut down too soon. For 25 minutes, with one brief exception, they heard nothing from the ground. The Ascension Island tracking station had the wrong acquisition time, so its communicators had not talked with the pilots. Lovell was relieved when he heard Conrad hailing him through the remote line at Tenerife, with some needed data for the maneuver to track down Agena 12 so they could rendezvous and dock. The maneuver was scheduled to take place within a few minutes. Things now went smoothly, and a little more than an hour after launch, Aldrin reported that he had solid radar lock on with the Agena that was 436 kilometers away. From Houston, Capcom Conrad replied, It looks like the radar meets the specs. When the spacecraft moved into a circular orbit below and behind the Agena, the radar showed the Agena to be 120 kilometers away. But this was the last figure the crew could trust. Reception got so poor that the onboard computer refused to accept the radar's intermittent readings. The crew reported the erratic radar. Here's the clip. The radar failure meant that Gemini 12 would have to rely on the backup charts it carried to complete the rendezvous. Aldrin, who was a member of the team that had planned and worked out chart procedures, now had a chance to see if his doctoral studies at MIT and the simulator training in St. Louis with McDonnell and MSC engineers really were practical in space. Aldrin, who was sometimes called Dr. Rendezvous, had already pulled out and used the T2 manual navigation sighting sextant to take a look at the target. When the radar failed, the sextant became operationally important. In the automatic rendezvous mode, the radar would have fed range and range rates to the computer, 
Lovell would then have flown the spacecraft by the resulting numbers. This time, the computer would be left in the catch-up mode, and either Aldrin or Mission Control, or both, had to figure range and range rates to see if the computer was correct. For this backup method, Aldrin used the sextant to measure the angle between the local horizon of the spacecraft and that of the Agena ahead of and above them. He checked this information with his rendezvous chart and cranked the necessary corrections into the computer. Lovell flew the spacecraft with these numbers to rendezvous with the target. Here's a clip of how they did it. The crew rendezvoused with the Agena after three hours and 45 minutes of flight. They had only used 127 kilograms of fuel. Lovell called the Coastal Century Quebec at T plus four hours 13 minutes. Here's the clip. Is he docked, CSQ? Uh, that's not going to fight. Okay. You satisfied with the Agena? We are docked, but since Gemini 12 was the fourth flight to make that announcement, the shipboard flight controller did not see it as much of a big deal. He merely replied, Roger. For the second time, a Gemini crew was able to practice docking and undocking. They unlatched the vehicles and Lovell got to try his hand at docking during the night, but the spacecraft was misaligned. The target's docking cone did not unlatch. Instead, it locked bumpers, catching on one of the three latches. Similar to a car stuck in the mud, Lovell fired the aft and forward thrusters trying to rock the spacecraft free. Both vehicles were shaken, but he broke loose without damage to either. A few minutes later, Aldrin docked without difficulty. During docking practice, the fuel cell hinted that it might cause trouble and not last the full four days. But, 30 hours passed before a power loss was actually registered. Eventually, the experts decided that there may be too much water in the tanks. It was discovered whenever the crew drank water or used it to prepare their food, the fuel cell warning light went off. The ground controllers were not sure what had happened to the water storage system. Two tanks that held the crew's drinking water and the fuel cell product water. But, in some way or another, the astronauts had lost a place in which to store from 15 to 18 kilograms of water produced by the fuel cell. So the crew had to drink more water to make more room in the tanks and to purge the system more frequently to remove gases that accumulated in the fuel cell, 
with the crew drinking lots of water and watching the red warning light, they were able to nurse the fuel cell along for more than 80 hours. The flight neared its end before the batteries had to take over the electrical load. The next item on the agenda was the firing of the Agena to go to a higher altitude, but that part of the flight plan had to be changed. Eight minutes after the Agena was launched, its main engine suffered a momentary 6% decay in thrust chamber pressure and a corresponding drop in turbine speed. So, while Lovell and Aldrin chased and caught the Agena, then practiced docking, Mission Director Snyder and Flight Director Lunny had to decide whether the main engine, which was called the PPS, should be fired. Here's the audio from Capcom. The problem appears to be uh, one that indicates a possible uh, turbine uh, pump problem. And uh, we are going to give you a go a little bit later on as to whether you can make the PPS burn or not. Mission Control soon decided that prudence was a better course. The PPS burn was canceled. Although the pilots missed the ride to high altitude, Lenny soon found something for them to do with their spare time. The flight plan had originally called for them to photograph a solar eclipse if it did not conflict with the rest of the mission. This task fell by the wayside when the two-day launch delay from November 9th to November 11th occurred because the eclipse would have occurred during the high-altitude excursion. Canceling the main engine burn inspired two of the mission planners to thoughts of reinstating the eclipse photography. Snyder and Lunny conferred with James R. Bates, Experiments Advisory Officer for Gemini 12, on the effect this might have on the rest of the experiments, since the flight plan had to be changed anyway. Bates said, why not include the eclipse? This conference with Bates marked a significant change in mission control operations. Formerly working out of an adjacent staff support room, the experimenter's representative was now allowed by the engineers in charge to operate as part of the flight control team in the main control room. Although there had been an experiments console in the control room by as early as Gemini 10, it had been only occasionally manned. Bates on Gemini 12 was the first full-time experiments officer. This experience worked out so well that the procedure was continued on Apollo. Even after the eclipse was removed from the initial flight plan, planners continued to plot its path. Now there was a chance to work this experiment back into the mission. The Agena's secondary propulsion system had enough power to get the spacecraft into position for an 8-second photographic pass at the proper time. Snyder and Lunny agreed that this piece of real-time planning will give an added boost to the mission. The eclipse got to us after all, Lovell remarked. Yes, it looks like it, Conrad answered. 
Although the crew had wanted to do the eclipse experiment when it was first planned, these sudden preparations came at an inconvenient time. They were still working with the Agena and were scheduled to begin such activities as eating, sleeping, and working on other experiments. Nevertheless, at T plus 7 hours 5 minutes after launch, Jim Lovell fired the Agena's smaller engines to slow his speed 13 meters per second. The target vehicle performed well and the crew then bedded down for the night. Here's the clip from Hawaii. After the astronauts rested and got maybe two hours of sound sleep, the Canary Islands controller greeted the crew. Canary Island told the crew that there would be a second maneuver, five meters forward, to line up the vehicles properly. The maneuver worked well, and the crew reported seeing the eclipse right on time at T plus 16 hours, 1 minute, and 44 seconds. The path of the eclipse cut a swath across South America from north of Lima, Peru, nearly to the southernmost tip of Brazil. Although the astronauts thought for a moment they were slightly off track, their aim had been accurate, and they brought the photographic evidence to prove it. The sudden change in the flight plan to view the eclipse had disturbed the crew a little bit, because of its possible interference with the first planned extravehicular exercise. After all, EVA had become the heart of their mission. Despite interruptions, especially that caused by the second maneuver, the hatch was opened on time, about 20 minutes before sunset in space. Aldrin exclaimed in near speechless awe, Man, look at that! Aldrin was amazed and impressed at seeing so much of Earth and the universe spread before his eyes. Here's the clip. Aldrin went about his chores slowly and deliberately, working for short periods and then resting. First he just stood in the hatch, becoming acclimated. Then he cast loose a garbage bag. Moments later, he murmured, quote, Stars in daylight? I don't think so. End quote. He soon realized that he was watching the garbage bag drift away. Buzz was in darkness for eight minutes before his eyes became adjusted and he could see real stars and planets. He studied his every moment, every action and reaction, so he could compare his stand up experience to the umbilical EVA that was scheduled for later. He set up an ultraviolet astronomical camera. During two night passes, he photographed star fields. Although Lovell had trouble turning the spacecraft in specific directions, 
because the Agena had nearly a full load of fuel. During daylight, Buzz installed a movie camera, fixed a handrail leading to the target docking adapter cone, pulled off the ultraviolet camera, reloaded it and put it back, retrieved a micro-meteorite collection package, and took pictures. At T plus 21 hours and 58 minutes, the crew buttoned themselves back into the spacecraft after recording their first highly successful 2 hour and 20 minute EVA. The next day, Lovell and Aldrin got ready for the main event of the mission, to see if a man could perform useful tasks in space at the end of an umbilical. Near the 43-hour point in the flight, Aldrin stood up in his seat and reinstalled the movie camera just as easily as before. Then he removed it, stepped into space, and replaced it, using only a handrail to maintain position. The astronaut then moved hand over hand along the rail to the nose of the Agena docking adapter, Using his waist tether for restraint, he tied the two vehicles together for the gravity gradient experiment, without any of the problems astronaut Richard Gordon had encountered. The pilot floated to the hatch area and exchanged cameras with Lovell. Moving along the handrail, Aldrin went aft to the spacecraft adapter. He placed his feet in the golden slippers which were overshoots-type restraints. Then he moved his body back and forth and from side to side to see if the slippers really helped as much in holding him down as the program office had hoped. They allowed him to relax completely and to lean as much as 45 degrees to either side and 90 degrees backwards. Next, he unpacked some small pin lights and set to work in the busy box, torquing bolts and cutting metal. On one occasion, a bolt and a washer slipped free. Aldrin maneuvered the weightless fittings into a corner, capturing one in each hand. Lovell asked him over the intercom if he was playing orbital mechanics in the adapter, and Buzz replied, Yes, I had to do a little rendezvous there. At sunrise, he returned to the open hatch. After resting for a few minutes, Aldrin again went forward to the Agena, this time to a busy box attached to the target. Lovell watched him as he pulled electrical connectors apart and put them together again. Aldrin also tried a torque wrench that had been designed for the Apollo program. For this task, he used first both waist tethers, then one, and then none. On the way back to the hatch to end his second two hours of extravehicular time, Aldrin stopped to wipe the command pilot's window with a cloth. As he did, Lovell asked, Hey, would you change the oil too? Next, Aldrin climbed aboard and stood in the hatch and watched while Lovell fired some of the thrusters. He then sat down in the spacecraft seat. 
The door closed easily, and Aldrin released oxygen in his life support system to help repressurize the cabin. Now it was time to eat. Eat period for you starting at 2300 to 2350. Between the second and third EVAs, Lovell and Aldrin performed their tethered vehicles experiment. You may recall from the previous mission that there were two ways of carrying out this experiment. Gemini 11 successfully completed the spin-up or rotating mode method, so it was up to Gemini 12 to complete the gravity gradient method. In the gravity gradient method, the docked vehicle combination assumed the position of a pole always pointing toward the Earth's center. The Agena engine nozzle represented the tip of the pole and the Gemini adapter section on the spacecraft the top of the pointer. Once the pole was pointed correctly, the crew could then back the spacecraft out of the Agena dock until the 30-meter tether became taut. If properly positioned, a slight thrust of only 3 centimeters per second would keep the line taut, and the now elongated pole would drift around Earth with the two vehicles maintaining the same relative position and attitude. This is how the experiment went on Gemini 12. Lovell backed the spacecraft carefully away from the Agena, forming a pole, vertical to the Earth. The tether deployed smoothly with only a brief hang-up, but it remained slack. Lovell was exasperated at his inability to tighten it using the spacecraft thrusters. Lovell described it like this, quote, About this time we had a little problem. Every time I wanted to pitch up or yaw, I would roll, end quote. Despite the control problem, the crew did obtain the gravity gradient they sought. Both vehicles got upset on occasion. The spacecraft at one time wig-wagging around 300 degrees. The Gemini Project Office was not sure what caused these disturbances. In the Program Office final mission report, it is stated that the cause was not completely understood, nor was the system behavior during and immediately following these excursions. The tether experiment lasted four hours, proving that both the controllers and the crew were confident enough to continue this form of station keeping through the nighttime passes. On the fourth day, the third hatch opening and the second stand-up-in-the-seat EVA was performed. Aldrin tossed out a lot of equipment he had used during the umbilical EVA as well as some empty food containers. Then he snapped several ultraviolet photographs of constellations. Once his work was completed, he went back inside and closed the hatch, the last extravehicular performance of the Gemini program was ended. This EVA lasted about an hour. But NASA engineers, mission planners, and astronauts 
now believed they knew much more about the fundamentals of EVA. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.